This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. Davidic Love Sprinting, sort of an unusual title. It probably ranks up with my uh, title, The uh, Hands of Zerubbabel, uh, that I, we used to joke uh, that if you go online, you see Eric Ludy's sermons, the lowest uh, viewed sermon of all time is like The Hands of Zerubbabel. It's too obscure, and so everyone's like, what in the world's that? Well, Davidic Love Sprinting has to rank up there, so I'm definitely not doing a service to this online, but uh, the title is great. If you, if you know what, it's, what it means, and this is, you'll like it, but... You sort of have to get past it first. A study in the manly pursuit of heaven-bred intimacy. You know, you'll notice a funny sort of irony in the subtitle. Man and the word intimacy in one sentence. The two don't even go together. That's like oil and water. And that's the point. In other words, for me to bring in the picture of David into this is important because David is going to be what we would call a Christophany or a picture, a sighting of the messianic person of Jesus Christ. And so there's certain attributes of his life that when you study them and when you get to know them, you actually begin to understand the work of Jesus, who is our head, who is our bridegroom, who is our captain of salvation. And so we'll, we'll sort of unpack this title as we progress. But let's start just with the premise of David, one of my favorite guys. And I almost feel bad having him be one of my favorite guys in Scripture. You know how it's like, who's your favorite Bible guy? And it's like, to say David is... It's like, well, everyone says David. Of course, you can't say Jesus. That's illegal. You can't say everyone, you know, that, that's a given. But so you say David or you say Paul and, you know, it's like, well, that's what everyone says. So you always want to pick someone unusual just so you feel like you're unusual. Uh, but David is, is a favorite for me. He really is. And I love preaching on David. I talk about David a lot. The gentle harp playing lad with a bloody sword in his scabbard, he's a mixture of something that is hard for us to comprehend. Gentleness. I mean, he played the harp. I mean, come on, it sounds sort of girly. And then you have the fact that he truly is the greatest warrior in his generation. He led an armed force that was just something special. His 33 mighty men are something that every single one of us as men stare at and go, oh, to be one of those. And this is the one who led them. This is a great warrior, and yet... He was soft and strong simultaneously. And that mixture is very intriguing because it's a, it's a picture of our God who though he is God Almighty, fiery righteousness, he is the Lord of hosts and the Lord of battle. He's also our comforter. He is our bridegroom. He is the one who ministers a grace and a mercy unto us. That combo package is very critical in our understanding of God. The meaning of the name David. So in the Hebrew, if you take the D sound off of David, and you take the middle portion. In the Hebrew, the word would be Ahava. And so you stick the D on, the, on both sides. You have D, Ahavad. That word Ahava 
is love. And so in the name David is this idea of, and his name means to most people, especially those of you that are named David, you would say it means beloved. And that's what it would be understood as, but it also could be understood as the one who loves. It could be the one who is loved. In other words, it's one who understands. He, he pictures, he demonstrates something to us that is very important. And it seems to be love. The shepherdly affection. So David was a shepherd, but he was also a king. And that mixture is very important in our lives. So since this is sort of the finishing touches to a week talking about manhood, I am not going to shy away from emphasizing how this affects manhood. Because these, these combinations of shepherd meets king, or softness meets strength, is what we were talking about this weekend. And that combo package is very rare today. Usually, as men, we, we specialize in one or the other. That's a strong man. Or, yeah, that's a soft man. And if you're the strong sort, then you look at the soft sort with a chuckle. If you're the soft sort, you know, with your 400 shoes in your closet, uh, you have a tendency to look at the hard ones as very hard. And, you know, it's interesting because it isn't... We, we go either extreme. You have the guy on the football field with the face paint on, and then you have uh, the rather limp-wristed sort uh, in our culture. And as a result, we have a tendency to polarize the issue. And in actuality, God is a demonstration of a combo package of strength when strength is required and softness when softness is needed. And so the shepherdly affection... David was an amazing shepherd. And the fact that he was an amazing shepherd made him a great leader over Israel. Loving affection begets loving affection. I remember when we uh, had Hudson, and he was just a little guy, uh, just born. Uh, One of the statements was, sleep begets sleep. And so you always want to get your child to sleep, because if they sleep, then they'll sleep more. And if they don't sleep, then they stay awake crying and so, I mean, I was very, into, I quoted that all the time, sleep begets sleep. Oh, we're gonna, because there were times just like, is he sleeping too much? I mean, it seems like he's sleeping all day. I mean, don't get me wrong, that's sort of nice at one level, but I mean, I don't want him to be awake in the middle of the night. And so you always try and get your child to sleep because it actually begets or creates more sleep. Strange as that is, that isn't how it works for me, but that's, I guess, how it works for a little child. In the principle of the kingdom, what you're going to see is loving affection begets loving affection. You see, when a spouse loves and shows loving affection to their spouse, it has a tendency to create a loving response. And so what we oftentimes do in marriage, as a simple illustration, is we wait for the other person to give a loving affection. And then it's like, okay, then I'll give my loving affection. But who's going to start this thing out? Because loving affection begets loving affection. And so what we see in David is we see that he's the initiator of what we'll call loving affection. So how does he take care of his sheep? He loves his sheep. He cares for his sheep. He's a good shepherd. So a lion comes and grabs one of his sheep. What does David do? Hey, hey, that's my sheep. And he breaks the jaw, takes back the sheep from the lion. And the bear, he does the same. And he shows the same love and affection for his nation, Israel, that he was, he was anointed king over. He says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? When Goliath came... You see, David was marked to say, hey, I love these people, and you don't touch them. And so there's something very special about this shepherdly affection. 
I'm going to give you a mathematical equation here. David sprinting equals sprinting sheep. So David, when the lion came, what did he do? He sprinted. He went after that danger. How about when the bear came? He sprinted. You know what it says and how he approached Goliath? I said this to the men this weekend, but the Hebrew word is mahar, which means to sprint. He sprinted towards Goliath to move with liquid ferocity as a lion towards his prey. That sprinting, I want you to think about it, equaled the sprinting sheep. Think about David's mighty men in the cave of Adullam when they overheard his longing for a cup of water from the well of Bethlehem. What did they do? You see, that loving affection that he showed to them to protect his sheep, to protect his nation, it actually created a reciprocal response within his sheep, or his men in this case, and when they heard of his longing for a cup of water from the well of Bethlehem, they did what most of us would call insane actions. They went straight into and through and through an armed garrison in the town of Bethlehem to get a cup of water and bring it back to their master, the one they loved. Intimacy, the word that makes grown men tremble. I mean, we can handle a lot as men, but then someone brings up the topic of intimacy and it's like, (laughs) we start to get a little weak-kneed. This is uncomfortable territory for many of us as men. And as far as I'm concerned, I see no reason why it should remain that. Some of you have worked through this where you're like, I'm not intimidated by the word. You can speak it, Eric, and I'll be fine. And others of us in here are maybe checking out the exit sign, you know, feeling like maybe our bladder is full and we do need to check out the facilities. This is not the message I was hoping for. Isn't this a man weekend? Intimacy? That's not a man word. There's no reason why it can't be a man word. So what exactly is intimacy? Intimacy, in the most simple sense, drawing near with perfect confidence. When you have a relationship and there's intimacy, that means there's trust. So as a result, you know that you can come near to someone without being harmed. And so as a result... There are certain things that were required for that because one of the main attributes of what the gospel is bringing about is intimacy, where we can actually draw near unto God with perfect confidence. Come boldly unto the throne of grace. You see, how can we come boldly? Because we are rebels, we are sinners, we have violated the holy law. We are unworthy to enter into that throne room of grace. And yet the work of Jesus removes the impediment, removes all that stands between us and closeness and intimacy with God. And so this is not just a feminine word. This is the word of the gospel. This is the result to the fruition of what takes place when we come unto Jesus as we are drawn near and we can approach God who is unlike us. He's holy, 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 and we are unholy, unholy, unholy. We are not like him. We do not bear that resemblance yet. We have not been filled even with the Holy Spirit, but we need to come unto that throne of grace. How can we do that? It's the work of the cross that makes an avenue available to us so that we can enter in and find intimacy. And then there's a reciprocal process. We begin to love back. 
And then we ask for the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit fills us. And what is it that's the spirit of love and affection even back to him? And it grows and it matures, and it's called a relationship with God. So here's some definitions for the word intimacy. Nearness. Closeness. Admission into the sacred. You know that you have aspects to your life that you don't naturally just open up and share with others. It's like, you've got to be kidding. I'm not going to share that. I mean, you're vulnerable. And yet intimacy is admission to someone. I am going to allow you in to this part of my life. Well, you have to trust them to do that. And otherwise, so it's admission into the sacred and otherwise prohibited territory. Intimacy is also affectionate friendship, the healing of all hurts, the removal of all impediment, the complete restoration of all trust, no barrier, no restriction, no wall of separation. And what you're going to see as we go through this is this is what the gospel offers us. Sharing the inmost is another definition for intimacy, revealing that which is inward or innermost. So celebrating the work of the cross for it has brought us near unto our God. Everything that I just repeated to you about intimacy is actually what Jesus Christ accomplished for us on the cross. Jesus brought us near into his most intimate affections and shared with us his inmost. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, that word gave up, I just want to look at it real quick. It's the word paradidomai. And it means to give into the hands of another. To give over into one's power or use. To deliver to one something to keep, use, take care of, manage. Now imagine, Jesus is on the cross and he has something that he desires to share with us. He desires to draw us into intimate communion with the Father and himself. But there's a barrier that stands in the way known as sin. And so the cross is literally breaking down that wall of separation. It's destroying, it's crushing the head of that which has opposed us. But it also, even though it is a removal of that which hinders nearness, it also is a sharing of everything that's in him. You see, he didn't just ask for us to share everything that is within us first. He says, I'm going to give you everything that is within me. Just like David. He gave a loving affection towards his sheep. And then the response back is a loving affection. Jesus gave of his life for us. He actually entrusted it to us. Remember when he died and he breathed his last, what happened? The earth shook. And in the Holy of Holies, in the temple of God... The veil that separated mere mortal men from the very presence of a holy, holy, holy God was torn in two. And that would be a fairly scary thing if you were in lighting fires in the holy place and literally the awesome presence of God was exposed because that would kill you. Because you don't have a right into such intimacy because of your sin. And yet when Jesus died... Something happened. And that which belonged to God, two things you can see in that. You are now able to come near and into a place you never could have entered before. And that which was held back from you, the life and the power of God, 
can now come out to you. And so what you see in this is that Jesus did this. When he was breathing his last, he was doing this action, paradidomai. He was giving into the hands of another to give over into one's power or use, to deliver to one something to keep, use, take care of, and manage. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side and forthwith came there out blood and water. So Jesus at the cross has given up his life. He entrusts himself unto the Father. But then as that temple veil is being torn, there is a symbol, an outward symbol before all the watching people. And even 2,000 years later, we can stare at that cross. And even though we weren't there, we can see that symbol that a spear goes into his side and out comes a river. A river. Same river that Jesus was talking about when he says, those that believe in me out of their inmost will flow rivers of living water. And so what does Jesus show us? He gives us that river. He calls it the Holy Spirit. You see, in the Hebrew, blood is symbolic of life. And of course, water is water. You combine the two and you have a reddish water, don't you? And it's called living water, life water. The river of living water that flows from the throne of grace actually has been given to us. That heavenly affection from the very heart of God, that's actually where this flowed from, by the way, the very heart of God on that cross is given to us. God is the initiator in this relationship. He has given in order that we might come near and enter into an intimacy with him. Jesus is really good at this intimacy stuff, we have to admit. I mean, what a story that was. I mean, it's like, wow, he's good. We, on the other hand, not so much. We're not naturally inclined to be excellent in this. Now, some of us would argue that women just sort of seem to have a natural ability with intimacy. I think they have more of a natural desire for it, and they probably are more skilled in this, and we as men, I'm not exactly sure what to say about us in this, we have some wonderful attributes, don't get me wrong, but I don't know that gravitating towards intimacy is one of our strength points, and yet I would say there's no reason as Christians with the power of grace that has been given to us why we couldn't exercise unto strength in this exact realm in our life called intimacy. Saddling the fire-snorting stallion. So this had to fit in somehow this weekend. But when I would travel with Leslie, uh, she would uh, have me get up and speak at her women's conferences, and she'd always like, all right, Eric, share with them what a, a marriageable man is. Uh, so, you know, all these girls are wondering who, you know, is going to be appropriate to get married to. And so I get up and I share what a marriageable man is. So ladies, listen closely. This is what a marriageable man is. And so I, I, I put the gradients between 0 to 10, and so we start counting. I, first piece of advice I give is don't, don't marry a 0, okay? And that's, that's quite revolutionary to many of the girls. Uh, but what I liken it to is I say manhood is, is something that is formed because a man has a vision for something. He has to see that there's something far more than the way he's living today. I mean, being male doesn't necessarily make you a godly man, let alone a man. And so 
A man sees a vision. He sees this picture of strength, of majesty. He realizes that he is built for difficult things, to lay down his life for others, to be strong when he needs to be strong and soft when he needs to be soft. Manhood. And so a man sees it, and so then he sees the stallion. It's the fire-snorting stallion here, and it's, it's white, and it ripples with muscle. Even when it breathes, it's like its muscles go... And out of its nostrils, smoke and fire. We're like, whoa, that can carry me there. And that's the only way to get there. And so we catch the vision, and we throw our leg over the fire-snorting stallion, and we go, charge! We have no idea what we've signed up for. (laughs) So we get on that fire-snorting stallion, and that fire-snorting stallion does one of those little hip things, and we go, whoo! We go flying. You see, we mean well. We mean well. We're like, I want that. But we have no idea what we're riding. We have no idea how impossible what it is we've set out to do really is. So we throw our leg over. We get tossed. We probably land in that one pile of manure over there that we spent a lot of our life in. And so what I tell girls is don't marry a one. That's a one. A one has the vision, but he doesn't yet know how to stay in the saddle. You see, a man isn't just made up because he has a a movement of soul and he has a desire to be a man. He yearns to move forward in strength. That's a good sign. Don't get me wrong. That's a sign of life. But a man has to learn how to ride that stallion, which, by the way, is impossible. Isn't that a funny statement? You can't ride it. I I, I know. You're like, what kind of message is this, Eric? Well, just, just wait. So... What I tell girls is I say, watch that man, that one that's in the manure right there. He's been in that manure many times. He, he got up out of him. He's like, I'm not going to be in this manure again. I'm going to ride that stallion into true manhood. Next thing you know, he's in that pile of manure. And I say, watch him. Because there's two different ways that a man can respond. One is, he says, it's impossible. I can't do it. He shrugs his shoulders and goes face first back into the manure. The other one is what makes a two. He grits his teeth stares back at that stallion, and he says, I don't know how to ride you, but I know you need to be ridden. And so he grits his teeth, stands up, wipes himself off, and says, we're going to go at this again. And he throws his leg over, gets thrown off. Grits his teeth, throws his leg over, gets thrown off. Grits his teeth, throws his leg over, gets thrown off. You see, that's a two. Don't marry a two. A two still doesn't know how to stay in the saddle. Now, I've already said that it's impossible for you to ride this stallion, which, of course, is only leading to a little hopelessness for all the girls there. (laughs) And yet, you can't ride this stallion. But I want to introduce you to someone who can. The secret to a man is not just the vision, but beginning to unpack the realities of how the Christian life actually functions. It's not something that you dig out of your strength and ability. It's something that you find in his strength and ability. Jesus Christ has done something, and he's accomplished something. He's tamed the fire-snorting stallion. And so the secret, and what I would describe as a three, not a finished product, just a three, one who is beginning the journey is one who realizes, I can't ride this thing, but it must be ridden. And so what you realize is that he needs to ride it for you. 
I'm going to give you the secret to Christianity right here. You need to humble yourself to allow him to reach down, pull you up into his lap. And you need to learn how to live out your manhood in that dependent position. In his strength, in his power, you function as a man. So the I can't, but I must. So the law of Moses is given to reveal that we have a problem. You could almost say it this way. The law of Moses is saying, you see that standard over there? See how amazing that is? You need to live that way. And this guy is the one that can get you there. If you can learn to ride him, you'll satisfy me. So we're like, all right, I'll do that for you. And what's this stallion teaching us? By the way, did I give you the name of this stallion? He has a name. It's called Perfect Righteousness. Yeah, see, now you're like, no wonder I couldn't ride it. See, there's only one that has ever ridden this. And so unless, and so what the law is teaching us, the law of Moses is teaching us, is teaching us that you, this standard is real. This is who God is. And so it's training us that we need a savior. It is illuminating to our understanding, our sin, our weakness, our I can't-ness. I can't do this. But look at the other part. But I must. You see, there's a whole sector of Christianity that says, I can't do this. And they throw up their hands and go back into the manure. However, there's still a pressing, but you must, that lingers in the air. And the Holy Spirit presses this point. But you must. Which is where many of us in here have come to in our life. Oh, am I frustrated. God, I want to please you. I want to ride this stallion, but I can't. Don't stop there. Keep pressing. God's like, yes, I hear you. You're right. But I must. I hear you. Are you ready for the gospel? Let me do the work for you. Faithful is he who has called you, who also will do it. You see, the secret to Christianity is that God does the working in and through us. It's not that we're absentee, just sort of standing on the sidelines going, oh, I hope he does a good job. He actually supplies us with the strength and we must exercise it to make it happen. So we're going to call it the holy tension of the schoolmaster. The schoolmaster is the law. And that law of Moses is going to say, you need to do it, Eric. And then I'm going to come back and I'm going to say, I can't. He says, I understand that, which is why I've supplied a savior. And that savior will do it for you and enable you to live a life that otherwise would be impossible to live. How much do you want it? So when you see the vision, my question to your soul is how much do you want it? See, for me, it's an ache at the deepest part of my being. I want to be made into a man. I want to truly reveal Jesus to this world. I want to live this out. I know a lot of people are just like, eh, eh, it doesn't matter to me. It's like, well, how can you live that way? Don't you have that passion? Haven't you seen it? It's magnificent. So how much do you want it? And here's a key follow-up question. Do you want it enough to humble yourself? Because to actually be able to pull this off, you have to humble yourself. You have to say, God, I'm in need of a rescuer. I esteem big things, but there's nothing inside of me that's able to accomplish this, as Paul says in Romans 7. And as Paul says in Romans 7, who can save me from this body of death? I am ill-equipped and unable in my own strength. 
And then his follow-up line is, but thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Oh, horseman, you've done it. And I will humble myself and allow you to do the writing for me. That is what most men struggle with. Because like, I can ride this stallion. I'll prove to you I can do it. And a Christian man is one who says, I'll prove to you one thing in my own strength, and that is I can't do it. But what I desire to show you in and through my Christian manhood is that he can do it in and through me. The gold of the gospel, there is an answer to your agony. So in this agony that many of us, and I know in this room because I've talked with quite a few of you uh, this weekend, there's an agony. Uh, this weekend we called it grabbing a hold of the banister. You don't want to go back down into those lower regions in your life. You don't want to go back to that manure pile. And yet that's the only thing you've ever known is defeat. And so there's this grabbing a hold of God and saying, God, I'm in a dark night here. And I don't know how to change these patterns, but it must change. There's a gospel message that we need to understand in our souls that gives us hope. It gives us an answer to this riddle. So there is an answer to your agony. So this is going to be a strange little seeming divergence at first, but we are going to talk about a gold mine. The land of Havilah. We'll call it the land of shimmering, shimmering golden beauty. So I'll read you the scripture in Genesis. And a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from thence it was parted and became into four heads. The name of the first is Pasan. That is, that is it which compasses the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. There is Bedellion and the onyx stone. Could you imagine inheriting Havilah? where the gold is good. It is a land literally marked and known for its gold. So here's what I'd like to just sort of acquaint you in your understanding of the kingdom of heaven. When you believed in Jesus Christ and you were legally transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, that actually you were also adopted as his children and you receive his inheritance. That which belongs to him is bequeathed to you legally. And so we're going to, for the sake of our imaginations today, say that Havilah is yours. You have been deeded or gifted the land of Havilah. Well, that's pretty amazing. So a deed. So this is the legal description, the legal uh, paperwork that is going to show your ownership of this amazing land. Have you ever noticed that gold doesn't usually just lay on the surface of the earth? Have you ever noticed that it's always buried somewhere and you have to put in some sweat to get it out? See, most Christians don't like the idea of Christian sweat. Oh, no, 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 we can't do any digging. We don't do that sort of thing. We're saved uh, by his, his grace and not by works. And so as a result, we never dig out the gold that we have. And yet, unless we understand that there is a required exercise in response to the free gift, I'm not going to argue that you did not earn any of this. There was nothing you did to gain Havilah. It's all that he did. But to gain the benefits of Havilah, you must become a miner. 
And mining is hard work. Hey, the question is, how much do you want the gold? You see, in Christianity, there's a tension that we deal with. God's work, my response. Do I have any work or do I just sit by and stare at his work? And there's a unique combo package because we're so fearful of actually lifting a finger spiritually that we actually do nothing and doing nothing is doing something. It's called passivity. And when you are passive, for instance, be passive with your house for two months. What's it going to look like? It's going to be a disaster area. You have to be active in the maintenance of a home. Otherwise, disaster rules. Passivity is an action. You are doing something, and that is nothing. And so as a Christian, our job is to not do nothing. Our job is to believe, is to activate the truth that he has. Do you believe there's gold there, Eric? I do. All right? What are you going to do about it? Well, you gave me a pickaxe, you gave me a shovel, and you gave me two hands. I'm going to go after it. How did you get the gold, Eric? You gave it to me. Did you do any work to gain this inheritance? No, you did. However, to gain the benefit of that inheritance, I have to act. That's the tension. I know, even in this room as we go through that, it's like, whoa, whoa, that sounds like works. Okay, let's take a good marriage. I can be married. I can't believe my wife loves me to start with. I mean, that's a, talk about a free gift. It's like, you actually love me. But to cultivate a healthy marriage, can I just be passive and go, ah, you know, I can't do any work for that. This is just a work of grace to start with. I can't, you know, make my marriage any better than it is. And so I become passive. What happens to my marriage? It's a disaster. See, there is an active engagement in the truth of Jesus. And that's what this message is about. The deed is yours. So what are you doing with it? You've been given the inheritance of heaven. All that you need for life and godliness has been made available to you. The entire throne room of grace is opened up to you. What are you doing with it? How are you exercising it? You've been given the equivalent of, we could say, ten talents. You've been given minas of gold. What are you doing with it? Are you investing it? Are you exercising it? Or are you staring at it and patting it in your bank account? Going, oh, I'm really glad I have those minas. Oh, it's really nice having those talents of gold. That'll really help me on the judgment day. Or you recognize that you've been entrusted with something so that you could begin to invest it in your life. Having a deed, but not having the golds. Welcome to modern Christianity. We have the deed. We all brag about having the deed. But we don't have the gold. Someone could say, show me the gold you're finding in those mines. You see, what does a gold miner do? He says, I'm getting some good gold these days. Show it to me. You're all talk, Ludi. What do we do? In our life as Christians, we bear fruit. We show gold. You see, a Christian that is a Christian Christian is going to evidence gold in their life. If you're not evidencing gold, you have a deed. I'm not arguing that. You could be a genuine deed holder. But that's not the end game of having Havilah. Havilah has gold in it. But to have that gold evidenced in your life and to actually be useful for transaction and commerce in the public square, you need to mine it. Gold has value only to the degree that you excavate it. Having the land and not having the gold out of the land is a funny problem to have. The plight of many a modern Christian. 
So I can know my father has given me a deed. So did, do you have a deed? I do. Yes and amen. I can believe the deed is authentic. Do you think it's a real deed? I do believe it's a real deed. I can believe the deed my father bequeathed me in fact, is in fact the only deed that can authorize my access to his great fortune. Are you sure there isn't another way to get this fortune? No, there's only one way, and that's this deed. You see, we can have correct doctrine in our understanding of the deed. I can receive the deed from my father and actually hold it in my hand. I have it. So are you saying you have the deed? Yep, here it is. It's folded up in my pocket. A real deed. It's authentic. It's the only way to get it. I can fold it and stick it in my pocket and keep it on my person always. So you still have that deed, Ludi? I do. It's right here. I have the deed. I can have legal right to all my father's gold and not actually ever have any gold in actual possession. What's the good of a deed? I have access to all his gold. Well, so can you show me some of this gold, Ludi? Well, I mean, that's not how it works. You see, as, as a deed holder, I don't actually go and dig because that would break a sweat. And I never want to do that. What a weird reality we live in. Imagine that uh, I were to give you a treasure map. You were to believe that that's the only way to ever find the treasure. It's one of those things where, you know, if you lose that treasure map, you lose the treasure. I mean, it's like that one weird journey across uh, rivers, over mountains, under the oak tree, take 10 steps, that type of thing. And you have the map, do you have the treasure? Just because you have a map doesn't mean you have the treasure. What do you have to do? You have to roll up your spiritual sleeves and you have to decide, I'm going after that treasure. So what do you have to do? You have to follow the map. The map's going to tell you how to get it, but you have to do something. You don't just say you have the treasure. You do. You have access to it. But you now need to activate what you know and what you believe. A proper response to a deed. So now let's talk about reasonable, rational understanding of how we as Christians function in regards to the gift of grace that we've been given in Jesus Christ. So I must know about the deed. So it does help to know about the deed. See, if you don't know that you have the deed, you won't know that you have the property or the, the land of Havilah, which means you won't mine it. You'd feel like you were, you know, trespassing and, and on someone else's property. It's not mine. But you have to know about the deed. Then you must reckon the deed, in fact, yours. Are, are you serious? This is, this is mine? Yeah. And Paul says, reckon yourself dead indeed into sin and alive under Christ. I reckon this deed mine. This is mine. I mean, I, I'm just amazed at this. But I have the land of Havilah. I have access to all the gold in it. Oh my, this is good. I must open the deed, read it, and know its contents. And have a full confidence that the writer of those contents has spoken truth. You, Eric Ludi, are now the possessor of the land of Havilah. I must present my life and body unto the adventure of mining gold. You see, this is a stage right here that many of us have struggled at. Because we are in, have you ever thought about it? You believe in Jesus. If the end game of believing in Jesus is just to get to heaven, well then why does he just take us out of this miserable place? However, there's a greater purpose. The church is being built not so that we can just get to heaven, but so that we can reveal the glory of God right here so that we can reveal the manifold wisdom of God to the heavenly realms here in the midst of contrary territory. God wants to conform us into his image to show that which is invisible on this earth in, the, in a visible way. 
So I must present my life and body unto the adventure of mining gold and sign up as a miner in pursuit of the promise of which the deed speaks. God, I'm willing to be a miner. Our equivalent would be, God, here's my body. Take it. I'm willing to be your man, your missionary. You take this life and you use it. Whatever you want to do with it, wherever you want to send me, whatever you want to do with this life, no matter if it be by life or by death, hey, I'm a miner. I'm a miner from this day forward. I must exert. Oh, wow. Exert? Are you allowed to do that as a Christian? And take real world steps, enter the mine, pick up the tools left me, and start searching for gold. The whole while knowing that if I heed my father's instructions, I will find gold in abundance. I must do the work of a miner. This is how Christianity functions. God has left us all the tools. He left, he's left us the land. He's given us the deed. What do we do now? We act upon it. We exercise this truth. See, what I'm setting you up for, you'll figure this out as we progress, I'm setting you up for how intimacy works. For instance, in a marriage or with your relationship with God, it's the same principle. You want to have a closeness with God, you don't just stand on top of the territory of Havilah and say, I have gold. Dig it. You have gold in your spouse. Dig it out. See, there's, there's potential there. There's, there's some startling things that are right beneath your feet, but it's going to take some sweat in order to get it out. I must obey the instructions of my father implicitly. What he says goes. When he says observe, I must observe. When he says wait, I must wait. When he says dig, I must dig. See, this is the principles of mining. You know, when you start going underground and you have creeks and... Uh, you have, and so if he says, God says, stop, look here, and you observe. We observe text of Scripture. We observe the ways of God. And what do you see? I see gold in this mine. And when he says, wait, you bring it back the pickaxe, and he goes, stop. You see, there's some times where you swing, and there's some times you pause and you wait because there's a little creaking going on. It's a delicate thing when you're in a mine. When you're in a marriage... How you handle the movements are very important. And how you handle that delicate one known as your wife is actually critical in how you grow and prosper. And when he says dig, you dig. If I do the work of a gold miner and I implicitly heed my father's instruction, I will find the treasure. It's a guarantee. We know that when we start digging, we'll find. We're going to find gold. So he says when you exercise this truth, you will get it. You can have a confidence in your marriage that when you agree with God and you do what he is asking you to do, it's going to produce good fruit. You will see that this loving affection spent wisely and exercised well will bring back a loving affection in return. In other words, this is just the natural flow, if you want to say, of gold mining. Opening the deed, the gift, the promise, and the commission. So, I'm going to show you an imaginary letter that I received from the Heavenly Father in regards to my, my land of Havilah, my gold mine, okay? So you need to use your imagination here. My son, Eric, herein lies the deed to the Havilah gold mine. It's yours, 100% yours. I mean, talk about something to brag about. Yeah, yeah I, I, I own the Havilah gold mine. Isn't that where the gold is good? Yeah, that, that's, yeah that's mine. Uh, I mean, that's sort of like, yeah, I own, uh, you know, IBM, I own Mac, 
Uh, I own, you know, this is like huge. Multiplied by a billion. I got the Havila gold mine. It's mine. I got, see it written right there. I, this is my letter. This mine is guaranteed to yield. Whoa, guaranteed to yield. There's not a lot of mines out there that you're guaranteed to give you gold. You can put a lot of effort into them. It doesn't guarantee back. God's gold mine guarantees. Though at times it may appear to have run dry, I promise you that there will always be a fresh vein of gold to follow. You must look for it, study it, get to know it, and never, and I mean never, will you go without. If you seek gold, you shall find gold. This mine will certainly reward you if you diligently seek its riches. You are penniless and unable to support the high calling you've received on your earthly salary. So I've been given a calling. And my own ability, in my own pockets, what I have is lint. I can't actually fund my calling. And I'm not just talking about financially. I mean spiritually. I do not have the funding to do it. I understand this. And therefore have bequeathed you this mine as the means of financially supporting the gargantuan assignment I've given you. And again, I'm using finances as an illustration here, but when I'm talking about supporting, I'm not meaning just monetarily or financially. I mean the undergirding of grace, the power to do it. As your father, I heartily exhort you, even command you, to not take this mine for granted. So if you were to stick in your marriage into that line... As your father, I heartily exhort you, even command you to not take this mine for granted, nor to forsake its great wealth. Mining is difficult work, and no doubt there will be times in which you desire to see if your own measly paycheck can sustain you. I assure you now that it will not and never will be able to. So quit yourself like a man, Eric, and go to work. If you heed my directive and embrace this high calling, you will have riches to spare. I am eager to witness how you steward this grand gift I've entrusted you, your beloved father, Abba. Heavenly doing. I know, I I don't know how you're doing. Maybe you guys are all just fine with the idea of heavenly doing. You see, there's a work in my own strength, trying to perform something that would appease God and please God and give me access under the throne of grace in and of my own working. That is not satisfactory. It will never please God. But there is another form of working in this body. It's not a passivity, but it is a working in agreement with what he gives me. He gives me grace. He gives me truth. He gives me command, but he also does it. Faithful is he who calls me to do the mining, who also will do it through me. And that's how Christianity, the great mystery of godliness, works. So not the insufficient work of the flesh or the labor of law, but the labor of the spirit, the labor of love. You see, in the New Testament, we have a higher law, the law of love, where we are able to, by the power of the Holy Spirit, perform Christianity. So let's look at five things that we need to do that we would call heavenly doing. You need to spend time inside the mine. If you're expecting to get gold, can't you just see an old miner talking to you and he has a little limp? I think of the guy from Man from Snowy River, uh, you know, and he has a, 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 what, a stick leg. Uh, And he's like, you're going to find gold? You're going to have to spend time in that mine. Just makes sense, doesn't it? You see, time equates to finds. You see, 
you cannot, if you're not spending time in there, you're not going to find the gold. You're not going to be able to excavate it because it takes time to excavate it. You're not going to be able to take advantage of this. As A.W. Tozier says, the man who would know God must spend time with him. Okay, brace yourselves for this one. The man who would know his wife must spend time with her. And by the way, sleeping next to her in bed at night doesn't count. This is a different sort of time. You could stand in your mind, you know, read a book. That's not what it means by spending time in your mind. You have to be spending time actually engaged in your mind with the observing, with the discovery, and with the excavation. Finding veins of gold. You see, you don't just spend time in your mind reading a book. You need to find the veins of gold. It's, a, it's an issue of study. When we spend time with God, there's another dimension of what we could call a spiritual discipline or an art of intimacy. And that is you must study the mind. You must study God. You study his word. You study his character. You study his nature. You study his workings throughout history. You become familiar with him. Then, say you find a vein of gold. Well, you now know what kicks in? Work. See, it's work to spend time. It's work to find the veins, but it's also work to mine that gold. So you need to mine the gold, gleaning the riches from the mine. Then you need to bring the beauty into the open air. I mean, you gotta cart this stuff out of the mine. If you could be way back in there, you gotta bring it out into the open air. You see, that gold that you have is meant to be used outside. And so it's, in other words, let's just give you an illustration here. Let's say I observe some gold in my wife and I see something very special in her. You know that I actually need to bring that into the open air and say, Leslie, I've noticed something. I've seen some gold, and I want you to know about it. You see, you want to bring that sparkle out. You know, there's something about gold in a dark cave compared to gold in the sunlight. And when you bring it out into the light, it brings a whole new level of pleasure out of that gold. Wielding its power in the marketplace. That gold is worth something. And it's translatable in this world into a very real impact upon a culture. And so as a result, when you go through this process, that fruit doesn't just change you. It doesn't just change your family. It changes the world around you. Now you have something to bring to the marketplace that actually impacts the world. Sacred results. The outcome is real and tangible, not theoretical. As a Christian, many of us have not actually seen that gold come out. We've been living in the land of theory, where it's like, I have gold, praise God, and we actually act like we have gold. Oh, I have gold. I've been finding some good gold these days, brother. It's like, really? Are you, are you finding gold, or are you just talking about finding gold? You see, there's a big difference between talking about it and doing it. When you actually do the work of a Christian in agreement with the Spirit of grace working in you, you actually produce fruit, love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The outcome is real and tangible. And those around you know it. They see it. They're seeing the same gold. It's sort of strange when someone next to you who's been grumpy all week is saying, yeah, I'm finding some really gold, good gold these days. So, you know, I'm not exactly sure if I am and you. The dangers of picking and choosing our labors. So some of you could say, you know, I really like to just stand in gold mines. And, you know, I, but I don't really like the swinging of the pickaxe. That, that's just not my style. I don't really like doing things like that. 
You have to be very watchful as a Christian not to pick and choose the labors of the Spirit of God in and through you. Because yes, in a body, we all have different gifts that are expressed in different ways to knit us together and to make us strong. But every single one of us needs to do every aspect of the mining. In other words, you don't just go, yeah, well, I sort of like the, the, the maid who doesn't do windows. No, I, I don't do windows. Well, in your spiritual life, you need to do windows. You actually need to exercise in all these areas. Don't just spend time in the mine, but study for the veins. And don't just find a vein, but excavate that vein. And don't just leave it in a heap in the, in the corner of your mind. Bring it out into the open air. And don't just leave it there outside where you're staring at it for your benefit. Take it into the open place, into the market. Share it with others. Give of the strength that God has given to you. He hasn't just blessed you so you can be blessed, but so you can be a blessing to others. Christianity. If you throw out the inconvenient duties requisite for mining Havilah gold, then you end up only with glorious possibilities and never with heavenly realities. Many of you have been functioning in the realm of glorious possibilities. And you've come to the place where it's withered you up because you actually are starting to doubt that there's really gold there. Not because there isn't gold there, but because you haven't been spending time mining, you actually have lost your vision for it. And someone could say, I don't think there's gold in the land of Havilah. You've never shown me anything. And you actually buy it. And you're like, yeah, I don't know that there is either. I think I got a dud deed. The golden reward. We're going to call it intimacy. The end result of all this mining is what? Intimacy. That's the result. When you exercise that grace that God gives you, you know what it does? It draws you close to Jesus Christ. It draws you close to the people you love. This is the result of this labor. Wanting nearness without the cross. You see, the cross is splintery. It calls for our death to self. I don't want that. I want to live my life. And as a result, we want intimacy or we want nearness without the cross. But the cross is the key. The cross removes our affinities and places God's affinities higher. It causes us to die so that Christ can live. Without the cross, you don't have life. And so as a result, we're desiring sacred results from that which can be gained without a cross. And so as a result, many of us in our marriages have tried to manipulate the circumstances in our marriage, manipulate our spouses to make them the way we would want them to be so that we would be fine. We could be happy if they were like this. So then we set up this standard that they need to hold to. We nitpick, we bicker, we contend, we critique, we criticize. And it's weird, but they don't become this visage of perfection in and through that method. I mean, it's shocking to many of us too. What's wrong? My, my spouse is where all the problems are. I mean, I have it together. They're a mess. No, I don't know that you have it together. You see, you're approaching intimacy, but from your own mentality, not being a dead man after God's agenda in your marriage. And so as a result, you're destroying your marriage. You're not benefiting it. You want nearness without the cross. You're desiring sacred results, and you're trying to get them from fleshly actions. So the epicenter of a man's life, you get down to the very basics of what make us Men, and you hit on our relationship with God, our relationship with our wife, and our relationship with our kids. 
You know that if you as men in here, instead of focusing on ministry and how you're going to change the world, you said, you know what? I want to learn to win the Olympic gold in those three areas. Even if I never had an outside ministry, which you will, don't get me wrong. Now, if, you, if you focus on that and make that a primary, you will have a ministry because everyone in the world will be flocking to you, saying, I need to know what you have. Because this is where men struggle. This is where men fail. They can build big businesses and make billions of dollars, but they'll fail here. There's a lot of great ministries that, well, I shouldn't say great ministries, big ministries out there that reach arenas full of people and they're dying here. Isn't that an irony? It doesn't even make sense. In other words, don't go after the glitz, go after the substance. If you are great in these three areas, you will be great in anything you do in this earth and it will truly change the world for Jesus Christ. This is where we start. The five arts of intimacy. So I have a book called The Bravehearted Gospel. And when I was originally signed the contract for that book with Harvest, we had a, a book title and it was called The Five Arts of Intimacy. So I was supposed to write the book The Five Arts of Intimacy, which is about this message basically. And instead, when I sat down to write the book, I was so burdened. I could care less about the five arts of intimacy when I sat down to write that book. I was so burdened for the state of the church and the need for the manly stuff to return to the stage of time. So I came to Les and I said, here, this is the only thing I can think of doing. I just have, I can't imagine writing a book called The Five Arts of Intimacy right now. And so she got, she said, you need to write it. And when you write it, write it like a man. So that's the famous story behind Bravehearted Gospel. But this was the book I was going to write. It's basically a message very similar to this. And so it was called The Five Arts of Intimacy. There are five things that need to be cultivated in a relationship with God, with your wife, or your spouse, and with your kids. This is how intimacy works. First, a man must be great with his God. To try and be great in your relationship with your spouse or with your children without being great in your relationship with your God, uh, it, it doesn't work. But if you are great in your relationship with your God, then you will, by course, be great with your wife and children. You know that if you're great in your relationship with your God and you're great in your relationship with your wife and children, you'd be great in leading the church? You might not even realize it, but that's who needs to lead the church. First, you prove a man in his home. If he can't be proven in his home, don't stick him over the church. But if he can be proven in his home, hey, hey, buddy, you, the one that's, able to rule your own home well. I want you to be over this church. That's how we test and approve the leadership. So these are important things. So first, let's look at the Jesus edition. This is the application to our relationship with God Almighty. The five tools that keep the spiritual fires burning. So the first one is the art of solitude and stillness. This is like time in the mind. Okay, if you don't spend time with God, then you don't have a relationship with God. The art of solitude and stillness. Time dedicated. Time given, time spent, time purposely directed in the principal attribute of a working, growing, and ever-maturing relationship with the king. This time doesn't have to be filled with noise, with action, or with activity. This time doesn't need to be marked by some gain, some benefit, or some calculable benefit. I use benefit twice in that sentence. It is time that is fully offered and made available without need of even the slightest compensation that truly yields the greatest yield in intimacy. So in a marriage, if you are looking for some benefit from your time with your wife, it's like, okay, if we could get like a project done, if we could at least clean the basement while we spend time together, 
then it makes sense for us to spend time together. This is a classic failure point. And both, of the, both the spouses could do this, too. It's like, well, if we're going to be together, why don't we get something done at the same time? I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying that's not actually what it means by spending time. And a lot of us take the same notion into our time with God, where we're like, okay, God, well, maybe I'll try and stick that in when I'm doing this. Or when I'm doing this, instead of just saying, no, there doesn't need to be any benefit. I just want you to know you're the highest priority in my life. But spending time with God is like awkward, strange, especially if we've never done it in our life. And that's why it's an art form. If you've never painted an oil painting in your life, it's a little strange too. Someone gives you a little, you know, palette of a whole bunch of oils and they give you a, a brush and a, and a, and a canvas. They're like, paint. Well, how do you do that? That's the same thing with the art of solitude and stillness. If you've never done it, it doesn't even seem normal. And yet to be still in God's presence, to listen, to focus on him, to enjoy his presence, is the same thing you need to learn to do in marriage. You know there are times when you just spend time with your spouse? Maybe it's you know, at bed, in, in bed at night where she's sitting there and, and you're sitting there and you don't even say anything. You just enjoy each other's presence. You can be sitting on the back porch, staring at the sunset. You don't even have to talk. I know, it's a little strange sometimes. Like, why wouldn't you? I'm not saying you shouldn't talk. I'm just saying you can enjoy each other's presence without feeling pressure to do some huge thing. You just love the person. You love being with them. Number two, the art of biblical study. So as you are cultivating this familiarity with, some, with Christ's presence, you also want to get to know him in and through the means that he has encouraged us to understand him through. He has given a revelation of himself through his word. So this is the art of intentional study. Affectionate observation and pursuit. So this is like being in the mine and actually looking for the veins of gold. Great love for Christ is a result of great observation and pursuit of Jesus Christ and his revealed word. But there are two ways to observe his word. One way is to observe with a critical eye, seeking fault, weakness, and frailty. The God way, however, is to observe with an eye for all that is lovely and lovable. Have you ever seen it that some people will spend time in God's word and look for flaws? They'll look for faults. This is the reason I don't need to believe it. You know that you're not going to cultivate a good relationship with God that way? The same is true in time spent with your spouse. If you're just looking for their flaws and you're irritated with all the things about them that aren't the way you want them to be, you're not going to cultivate intimacy. And so when you approach God's word, you approach it to see the magnificence of his person, to get to know him. The God way, however, is to observe with an eye for all that is lovely and lovable. When a Christian studies the king of kings with a desire to truly know him, understand him and appreciate him, and more effectively serve him, then the Christian will find that intimacy with Christ will find them. As it says in Jeremiah 29, 13, you shall seek him and find him when you search for him with all your heart. Number three, the art of biblical meditation. This is oftentimes, especially in the, the marriage side, called the art of loving meditation. Purposeful remembrance. Thoughtfulness is the spark plug of a great Christian life. It is so easy to get distracted and forget the things that matter most, but when a Christian labors to remember all that is lovely and lovable about Jesus Christ throughout the day, the stage is set for spiritual intimacy to thrive. When a Christian thinks on the word of God throughout the day, then the person of Jesus Christ will be paramount in their life. Things that are lovely, noble, pure, and of good report will be the substance of their thoughts, and closeness to Christ will be a natural byproduct. The art of heartfelt worship. So one of the statements throughout Christian history is if you want to truly worship God, 
meditate upon his goodness and his nature before you worship. So it would be the equivalent of, you know, back here is a lake. This curtain, if you pulled it aside and moved this big, huge uh, wooden thing out of the way, you would see a lake and you'd see trees and you'd see mountains. Now imagine that you'd never seen it. And so I like went over and took a peek and I said, you guys, oh boy, it is beautiful. It is so beautiful. There's a swan swimming on the lake right now. And, you know, I think I saw a bald eagle flying through the sky. And there's like the sun is going down and this beautiful scarlet crimson. Oh, it's gorgeous. Could we sing a song about that, guys? Let's sing. And so you'd have to borrow my description, and you'd be like, okay, all right, that sounds beautiful. That really does. And so yay, yay, yay God. Yay God for creating something that beautiful. I haven't seen it, but I, you know, I know he did, and I, I agree that he tells the truth, and so hey, let's, let's just celebrate the fact that God is doing some great things out there in the world behind that wooden thing. However, what if we all came up, and before we sang you all opened the curtain and looked out. Then we got back and we said, wow, together. You know, that's what praise and worship is. It's wow. That's that's all it is. It's us saying wow together. Did you see that? When a Christian studies Jesus Christ and meditates daily upon his preciousness, words of adoration and praise come naturally. You know that when you see a beautiful sunset, no one needs to twist your arm and say, say it, say it. And you're like... All right, it it looks good, okay? (laughs) You see, when you behold beauty, it elicits praise. Most of us in the church have only grown up with the idea that you have gold from Havilah, sing about it. All right, all right, I have gold from Havilah, and it shimmers and it's beautiful. (laughs) Have you ever seen this gold from Havilah? No, I haven't seen, no, that's not the verse. In other words, we're singing about something we're not familiar with. But if you were to take out gold, bring it into the light, what's going to come out of your your soul? Whoa. I got some beautiful stuff here. And then what's your next thing? Go and share it. You see, when you watch a good movie, what do you do? You want to bring everyone to it. You want to have them sit next to you and you even look at them. This is the part. And they're like, could you be quiet? This 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 is the part. I just want you to see it. How about when you read a good book? You buy 20 of them and you hand them out. Why? Because you want to share the gold. You have found something and you want to pass it on. But if you're not seeing the gold, if you're not holding the gold, you don't pass it on. And then someone says, you need to go out evangelizing. You're like, I just, boy, this is miserable Christianity. A Christian beholds Christ's beauty, strength and grandeur. There is never arm twisting required in order to get them to shout, Wow. A Christianity that continually proclaims wow is a Christianity that will always thrive. The art of prayer. The art of vulnerable communication. Faith and unshakable confidence in the bulwark is the bulwark of a working relationship with God. A Christianity built on the first four of these five arts is one in which true faith can flourish. And this faith is a soil in which the depths of honesty, openness, and vulnerability can grow. It is in this soil that the most precious communications can take place. The most precious prayer life can prosper. Heart to heart, deep unto deep, spirit to spirit. And this is intimacy, heavenly intimacy. Prayer is meant to be the expression of intimacy. You've seen him. You know him. You've beheld his glory. You've actually tangibly experienced his gold. You say, God, let's talk about this. You see, you understand something. 
because of what you have gone through and exercised, your prayer flows out of that very real relationship. So now let's transition into what we'll call the wedding edition. This is the same five arts of mining gold that we see in the Jesus edition applied to our marriages. And so if you're not married, just take note. This is good stuff. There's a lot of people in there that wish they could have started with this instead of, you know, 40 years in. Five tools that make a marriage beautiful. The art of solitude and stillness. Time dedicated. Time given, time spent, time purposely directed is the principal attribute of a working, growing, and ever-maturing love story. This time doesn't have to be filled with noise, with action, or with activity. This time doesn't need to be marked by some gain, some benefit, or some calculable benefit. <laughs> Sounds, I know, sorry about that, guys. It is time that is fully offered and made available without need of even the slightest compensation that truly yields the greatest yield in intimacy. In other words, the same principle is true. When you learn to cultivate a relationship with Jesus, what does that equate to? You have the tools to be great in marriage. What if you learn to be great in marriage? How does that affect your family? Huh, it's the same thing. In other words, you learn how to be in each other's presence and enjoy one another. The art of intentional study, affectionate observation. So you're married. When you were falling in love, you observed all the time. You enjoyed the varying nuance of their person. And you actually recorded it. You wrote love notes. You wrote poetry. And what were you doing? You were observing. Great love is a result of great observation. Boy, that little quote could just go up on your refrigerator. Great love is a result of great observation. Great finds of gold are a result of great observation. You have to find that gold. A lot of us spend time in our marriages thinking and pondering what's wrong. Could you imagine in a mine how many uh, you know, yards of granite you could stare at that don't have gold in it? And you could say, that piece of granite doesn't have any gold. Or you could look right here and say, there's gold. You see, you have to choose what you look at. Your eyes are searching for gold, not for granite. And in the midst of this humanity that we are, there is something very special that God has cultivated. There's value. There's something that Christ loved us so much for that he would shed his own blood to gain. That is what you're after. That is what you see. You don't see caterpillar, you see butterfly. But there are two ways to observe. One way is to observe with a critical eye, seeking fault, weakness, and frailty. The God way, however, is to observe with an eye for all that is lovely and lovable. When a spouse studies their spouse with a desire to truly know them, understand them, appreciate them, and more effectively serve them, then that spouse will find that intimacy will find them. A spouse that feels known, understood, and appreciated is a spouse that is open to closeness and to receiving expressions of affection. You see, if you feel you are known, you open up to closeness. If you feel that you can't trust that person, that they don't really know who you are, then you find yourself barricading. You find yourself pushing away subtly. Number three, the art of loving meditation. So you've seen the gold. You need to purposely remember that gold. Thoughtfulness is the spark plug of a great marriage. It is so easy to get distracted and forget the things that matter most, but when a spouse labors to remember all that is lovely and lovable about his or her spouse throughout the day, the stage is set for intimacy to thrive. See, when a man moves in to kiss his bride, 
he oftentimes, you know, realizes he hasn't thought about her all day. And so that might be a sensitivity point. And he knows that women like to hear special things about themselves. And he wants to warm her up because he really wants a kiss. So he says something like, uh, honey, uh, you're beautiful. I love you. All right, can we kiss now? <laughs> and yet, that's actually not how it works. And every woman in here could make that clear to us as men. But for whatever reason, we as men still struggle with that concept. Because it's not just what happens a minute before the kiss. It's what happens weeks and months and years before that kiss. It's a lifestyle of thoughtfulness. Now that puts a lot of pressure on us poor guys in here. We're like, oh, I just I feel a crushing weight. You're still looking in your pockets. I'm not asking you to look in your pockets to say, what do you have to bring to the table? I already know you can't ride this stallion. Don't you know that? This is a work of grace where you say, God, I want to do this right but I need some help. Since you're the greatest bridegroom that ever existed, would you mind living inside of me and doing some bridegroom work? Because I think my wife would really appreciate that. So where was I? A spouse that feels remembered, thought about, and considered is a deeply happy spouse. Now, by the way, guys, I, I'm right there with you where I can go into a meeting and totally forget about another portion of my life. It's very easy to do. It's actually a whole art form to keep connected to my spouse, to remember her as opposed to being detached from her. Leslie and I have basic principles in our communication. If she ever needs to get in touch with me, she can get in touch with me. And many of you have been in meetings with me. My wife calls and I take this call. It's my wife. She needs to always know that I'm attuned and her language of love is a little different. Than, you know, every woman has a different way of having things expressed to her. Leslie, her main expression is like me washing dishes, cleaning things, going down, waking up kids. You know, it's like sometimes I wish it was just poetry. <laughs> but for each of us as men, we need to study our wives and know where to get the gold. You see, the intimacy comes by observation and knowing our spouse. Don't just study someone else's spouse and go, well, this is what he does for her, his wife. How come it doesn't work on you? Uh, because I'm not her. I mean, talk, that wouldn't work. But that's a very bad idea for your marriage. Don't, don't try that one. <laughs> the art of affectionate expression. Words of adoration. When a spouse studies the one they love to discern everything lovely and lovable about them, and then they meditate and daily remember these precious qualities. Words of adoration come naturally. And some of you in here know what I mean by this as far as men. It's not natural. I mean, it was when you were falling in love, but now it's like you're so busy. You don't have time. And then your wife says something like, you haven't done anything romantic for me for a year. And now you just feel this paralyzing weight upon you because you're like, oh, great, I need to do something romantic. And as a result, it's not flowing naturally. So I'm not saying you shouldn't still do something in that moment, but you need to actually change the pattern so it doesn't become another year, but it actually becomes more natural. When one beholds beauty, strength, and grandeur, there is never arm twisting required in order to get them to say, wow. A marriage that continually states, wow, is a marriage that will always thrive. I guarantee you, men, you learn to say, wow, towards your wife. I know, as you progress in marriage, the wows tend to be further apart. It's not that you don't feel, it's like that, uh, what, the fiddler on the roof? You know, hey, uh, you know, you haven't said you love me. If I 
I, I said I loved you when I married you. If I change that, I'll tell you. I said, wow, when I married you. I still mean it. It's still good. It's, it hasn't been invalidated. It never expired. My wow is still good from back then. And yet a wife needs fresh wows. There's a need for fresh wows. There's an insecurity that can creep in without a clear enunciation of the fact that you see her, you observe her, you do appreciate her. Out flows the fresh wow. The art of vulnerable communication. So in our relationship with Jesus, this was called prayer. In marriage, this is the art of vulnerable communication, trusting openness. It takes a great deal for true trust to be established, but a marriage built on the first four of these five arts is one in which true trust can flourish. And this trust is a soil in which the depths of honesty, openness, and vulnerability can grow. It is in this soil that the most precious communications can take place. Heart to heart, deep unto deep, spirit to spirit, and this is intimacy heavenly intimacy. You see, what we are seeing is there's a pattern is given in scripture that our relationship with Jesus is actually in a small way reflected in an earthly relationship with a man and a wife. And yet our relationship with Jesus can't function without supernatural input. And yet we try and pull off our earthly marriage without supernatural input. And we can't figure out why we can't get this down. But there isn't a man on this earth that isn't empowered by the Holy Spirit to do this work of marriage that has succeeded. Oh, you can hang in there and have a longer marriage and not get divorced, but not getting divorced doesn't mean you have this. Actually still being married after 40 years and you know, still giving a peck on the cheek doesn't mean you actually have this. This is something special that we all yearn for. If you're single in here, I guarantee you, you're like, I want that. I want the real thing. I want to mine gold. I don't want to just have a deed. I don't want to just have a marriage certificate. I want intimacy. I want that gold out of my marriage. Well, how about your relationship with God? Do you want just the deed or do you want the gold? The heavenly pattern for the husband, responding to the impossible commission. Husbands, love your wives. Even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Uh, can we think of a higher standard? That is as high as it gets. Let thy, wife, let thy fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of thy youth and be thou ravished always with her love. Surveying the land of promise. Eleven attributes of the heavenly groom. He's an advocate, which is a defender. He's a fan. He's extremely biased in favor of his wife. He's the boaster. He talks her up. He's the partner. He's the helper. He's the student. He's the expert, the PhD on his wife. He knows more about her than anyone on earth. He's the friend, the loyal no matter what. He's the counselor, the bringer of truth and perspective. He's the encourager, the one who always sees the silver lining. He's the thoughtful, the considerate, the gift giver. He's the affectionate, the intimate, also known as the lover. He's the empathizer, the sharer of sufferings. You know what I just described for you is Jesus Christ. This is how he relates to his bride. And so we're supposed to love our bride even as Christ loved the church. The impossible commission, the one that every single Christian husband ought to carry out in the grace of the Almighty. You have a commission to reach this grand destination of manhood. You can throw your leg over the fire snorting stallion all you want. You're not going to be able to pull this off. 
I want you to get up into the lap today of the only one who can and to trust that it is his great desire to bring you there. An advocate or the advocate, the defender. My wife needs to know that I will stand for her, protect her physically, spiritually, and emotionally. I will be the first sufferer. As Jesus stood in the gap for me, it is my great privilege to give up my life for my beloved. Nothing touches my bride. I like it. I think there's a few brides in here like, yeah. The fan, you're extremely biased. I am incurably biased in favor of my wife. She is the most precious, most beautiful, most talented, most virtuous, most everything else that matters woman that ever existed. I'm her biggest fan, and I can't help but brag about her marvelousness. You go, girl. (laughs) The boaster, the talker-upper. I am blind to my wife's weaknesses. Eric, did you know your wife has weaknesses? No, no, she doesn't. As far as I'm concerned, she doesn't have any weaknesses. In fact, I can only see that which ought to be praised. I'm her self-appointed bragger. I'm her built-in PR department. Have you seen my wife? She's simply amazing. The partner, the helper. If my wife needs a hand, look no further than my own. In fact, take my hand, my other hand, my right and left legs, my back and my two shoulders too. Put your burdens on me, dear wife. I'm built strong so that I can serve you. If a baby is crying, let me go help them. If a room needs to be picked up, you stay seated and let me get it cleaned up. If a dish needs to be scrubbed, I'm on it. We're in this thing together. The students, the expert, the PhD. If there is something to know about my wife, then I'm going to make sure I know it. I desire to be Earth's resident expert on my wife. I must know her longings, her dreams, her fears, and her insecurities. And I don't just know about my wife for the sake of gaining random trivial data, but for the sake of serving her better as a husband. The friend, the loyal no matter what. If hard times come, I will still be here. If accusations come against you, I know the truth. If you lose your health, I'll remain by your side. If you lose your physical beauty, my devotion to you will not wane in the least. I am here always and forever, and I consider it a great privilege to call you my dearest friend. Number seven, the counselor, the bringer of truth and perspective. When my wife is struggling to see straight, it is my privilege to be the one ready to supply God's word. When shadow sweeps across our living room, it is my opportunity to turn on the light of scripture. When anxiety knocks, I must hit it in the teeth. When foreboding baits, I must strike hard and fast with the sword of truth. When false accusation, mockery, and lies fill the airwaves, it is my privilege to trump them with the power of a heavenly perspective. Number eight, the encourager, the one who always sees the silver lining. No matter what, I have words of life for my wife. I must never be the source of anxiety or depression, but rather the source of life. Even in the darkest hour, I must see the victory of Jesus, and I must labor to fill her mind with thoughts that are true, honest, just, pure, lovely, virtuous, praiseworthy, and of good report. Number nine, the thoughtful the considerate, the gift giver. I must labor to keep my wife always in my mind's eye. I must think about how she can be strengthened, encouraged, blessed, and built stronger. I must think of special, meaningful ways to express my adoration, my respect, and my love. And I mustn't skimp on these expressions. Number 10, the affectionate, the intimate. I must be the sort of husband that is trustworthy with my wife's innermost feelings, thoughts, and concerns. I must be trustworthy up close to handle her heart with the utmost care, to handle her inmost person with the heavenly delicacy and softness. I must be the man she wants to love and be near, not the man she is just supposed to love and be near. 
And finally, number 11, the empathizer, the sharer of sufferings. When my wife is hit with any difficulty, tribulation or trial, I will carry it with her. And if at all possible, for her. I feel her pain because her pain is my pain. Her heartache is my heartache. Her concerns are my concerns and her suffering are my sufferings. The impossibility of intimacy. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord or who shall stand in his holy place? Who shall be intimate with God? The passion for intimacy. And he arose and came to his father. And when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. We are cut off. Who should ascend to the hill of the Lord? You must have clean hands and a pure heart. We have no access, but our Father is fogging up the windows, longing for us to turn. And when he sees us, he sprints. The love sprint. The Davidic love sprint. He wraps his arm around us, kisses us on the cheek. This is the cross. This is the picture of the Father's heart towards us. The provision for intimacy. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw near unto God. We have had provision so that we can draw near unto God. The secret of, to intimacy with God, it's very simple, it's one word, Jesus. Without Jesus, you can't be intimate with God. He's the secret. The method by which he offered intimacy, the cross. All right, now let's look at this. The secret to intimacy with your spouse. I know, it's a shocker, isn't it? Jesus, the method by which he offered intimacy, the cross, the same tool by which we access the throne room of grace is the same way that we cultivate a picture of heaven on earth in our homes. The impossible has been made possible. But Jesus beheld them and said unto them, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. What I just described is a very high view of being a husband but it's God's pattern. We're supposed to love our bride the way Christ loves the church. And that's a pretty special variety of love. And if you check your pockets, if you try and ride this stallion out of here in your own gumption, you're going to fly off. Everything I just assigned to your soul is impossible. It's impossible for men, but with God, all things are possible. And this is his commission to us. He sprinted with love to the cross that we might also sprint with love. David sprinted after the lion, the bear, and Goliath. And then his men sprinted for him. Jesus is sprinted for us. The Father has run to us and wrapped his arms around us. Now what do we do? We sprint with love. We see a threat to those that we love and are assigned to, and we will sprint into the situation to bring them a cup of cool water from the well of Bethlehem. That's our assignment, men. That's our assignment, Church of Jesus Christ. Whether you're married or unmarried, this is the behavior of heaven. And to cultivate intimacy with Jesus Christ is the very highest form of spending our life on earth. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we need you to be able to enact this that we so desire. We desire to know you and to know you well, to be near to you and to share in your very presence. But we also desire to succeed in our earthly relationships and to do them in a heavenly way. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would supply us with the grace and that we would exercise that which we know to be true, 
that we would not just stare at veins of gold, but that we would excavate them. Lord Jesus, we love you and we trust you. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.